And Heavenly Father, we're reminded that as the Magi, the wise men came from the East, they had the opportunity to present gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. The very first gift that they gave to you was worship. And we want to offer that gift this Christmas season. We worship you as the Lord of heaven and earth. We worship you as the Savior of the world. We worship you, O Spirit of God, as the one who comes and tells us of Christ in our soul. Turn on the light of your illumination. Cause us to understand the things of your word and to go from this place today encouraged to know that Jesus reigns. In his wonderful name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 And Merry Christmas. I've never said that after Amen, so I thought I'd just say that. <laughs> Suppose you're putting your kids to bed on Christmas Eve, and as kids normally do, they try to put it off a little bit, but they say, Tell us a story. Tell us a story. And you say, Okay. Great, which one do you want to hear? Do you want to hear the night before Christmas? And they say, no, tell us a Bible story. And your heart just beams. They're more concerned about the message of the gospel around Christmas. Not that the night before Christmas is bad, but tell us a Bible story. And you're thrilled. And you say, okay, great. Which one? Do you, do you want the story of the angels singing to the shepherds? Do you want the story of the star leading the magi to Bethlehem? Do you want the story of Mary and Joseph traveling down to Judea? And they say, no. Tell us the one, the one about the great dragon who wants to gobble up the newborn child and then kill its mother and her other children too. <laughs> and you go, what in the world have you been watching? That's not part of the Christmas story. But oh, it is. You won't find it in the Gospels, which is where we normally center our understanding about the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Luke chapter 1 and 2. And they give us those timeless, wonderful incidents about God's sovereignty and how he brought a Savior into the world and protected him. But there's another story that is indeed a Christmas story, and you'll find it in the book of the Revelation right in the middle of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 12. And that's where I want you to turn this morning and talk about expect the unexpected. Here is an amazing Christmas story. That's our series, Expect the Unexpected. And this portion of Scripture fits right in. You know, as you teach and preach about Christmas year after year after year, as a pastor, you're looking for some new perspective. Uh, some new way to tell the old story, a fresh way to look at those timeless truths. And here we have it in Revelation chapter 12. This section of Scripture basically divides into three major divisions. And so we'll look at the three major divisions. The first one we might entitle The Murderous Attempts to Eliminate the Sun. 
One of the most difficult things in the book of the Revelation is to put all of the chronology together. Sometimes it's confusing and good and godly Bible scholars will disagree, disagree about the timing of events. But I'm not so concerned this morning about the timing of events. I want you to get the major movements of this amazing cosmic story that is the conflict, the spiritual battle that was going on when Jesus was born. The first six verses, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven crowns or diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. We'll stop our reading right there. Did you see the Christmas story? A woman to give birth to a male child who is to rule the nations? There are basically three major actors in this part of the story. You've got the woman, the dragon, and the son, the child that is born of the woman. Let's try to understand as best we can. And notice in the very beginning of verse 1, the word sign is used. It's a Greek word that means some unusual event or person or object that has unique significance more than what might appear merely on the surface. A sign usually depicts some type of important spiritual truth. So keep that in mind. Both the woman and the dragon are called signs. So they're more than just a literal woman, and it's more than just, indeed, a dragon. They represent something even a little deeper. So the sign appeared in the heaven, and a woman who was clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars, the 12 stars on her head. Now, again, theologians have debated this, but in my understanding of the Scripture, I think this refers to Mary as well as embodying Israel and the church, all the believers that are going to come forth from the woman. I don't think it's just Mary because later on in the story, the woman fits into an eschatological time period that is yet future. And again, it's a sign. And Mary also uh, is said to be, or the woman is said to be, the sun and the moon and the stars. And that takes us back to Genesis 37 where you've got the birth of the nation of Israel coming out of Jacob and his 12 sons, and in particular, the dream that Joseph has. So it seems far more than just a woman on the surface. 
Mary's included, but more than just the literal woman who gives birth to the literal son. It's going to refer, as we'll see later on, even to Israel and to the church, to the people of God. What about the dragon? Well, it's not too difficult to understand who the dragon is, is it? <laughs> it's not a literal dragon. It is one who is fierce and cruel, intensely so, like a dragon. It's a red dragon, and most likely the red speaks of bloodthirstiness and death. In fact, you have that in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 4 where red is equated with death. So this is the diabolical dragon, the dragon who is bloodthirsty. Now he has seven heads, which may refer to the location, as it does in Revelation 17 and verse 9, the mountains, the place of its uh, authority. The ten horns refer to ten kings, Revelation 17. You can check this out. And the crowns, it's the Greek word for diadem. And it speaks of royalty or authority. So the dragon is going to have some kind of political authority. And it's going to be a powerful dragon and an intensely vicious one. Verse 4 says, And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now again, chronologically, theologians are divided. Has this happened? Is it going to happen? And possibly this could be one of those theological aspects, one of those theological truths where you answer, yes, the already and the not yet. This probably refers to the fall of Satan initially. You can go to Isaiah chapter 14, and it talks about the devil who threw down the starry host. Isaiah 14 says, Oh, how you have fallen, O son of the morning, son of the dawn, cast down to the earth, and you were made low. And so the Bible talks about this devil who not only falls himself, we know the theology, we know the story in the Bible, that the devil himself, when he rejected Obedience to the king led some of the other angels with him in a great fall. And that's probably what verse 4 refers to, a third of the stars of heaven. But you're going to have something very similar to this happening during the end of time in the tribulation period. Who is this dragon? We'll jump down just for a moment to verse 9, and let's get a better description of exactly who this great dragon is. He's called the serpent of old. That speaks of his craftiness, the fact that he is a deceiver, which is mentioned also in verse 9. He deceives the whole world. He's called the devil, which is the word diabolos, diabolical in nature. And he is also called Satan, which means adversary. So it spells it out pretty quickly and very clearly exactly who the dragon is. And when you see the word serpent, that should remind you of something that happened in the beginning of the Bible. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? After Adam and Eve sinned and the curse then was going to be placed 
upon the, uh, the people because of their sin, the judgment that would come upon them. And there was also a curse upon the serpent, the snake who deceived them. Genesis 3.14, let me read it to you. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat the dust of the ground all the days of your life. But then listen to this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, or seed. He will crush your head, Satan, and you will nip at his heel. This is called in theological circles the proto-evangelium, prototype first, evangel, gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel Genesis chapter 3, and the fact that there is going to be constant conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The battle has been engaged. It's the cosmic conflict that we don't always see. It's going on around us. It's there, but often we're oblivious to it. It starts in the garden, and it's seed against seed. Followers of Satan against the followers of the seed of the woman, which Galatians tells us is Jesus Christ, clearly the Savior. And everything that happens on planet Earth is part of this cosmic battle between the two seeds. Never forget that. When you watch the evening news and you see the battles that are going on in the Middle East, part of the cosmic conflict between the two seeds. Somehow it fits into the story. And it's exactly what Jesus told us in Matthew 16. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will do everything it can to prevail against it. It won't win, but the battle is raging. It's interesting that as you and I worship the Lord, and especially as we celebrate Christmas, our mind is often far away from the battles that are going on. But the battle was there that very first Christmas. The name devil, by the way, means slanderer. It's one who does everything he can to make good people look bad. He's called the accuser of the brethren. That's another name for the devil in verse 11. By the way, in the first century, there was a person who actually made it his living to accuse people in a court of law, the delator or delator. He was hired as a witness to give witness in a court of law and accuse whoever was being tried. Now, we have something similar to that, you know, paid informants or, or paid uh, accusers or paid witnesses when the system is corrupt. But that's exactly what the devil is going to do. More about that in just a minute. So that's who the devil is. Now what about the son? Well, the woman does give birth to a son, verse 5. It's a male child, and he is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. According to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9, that's none other than the Messiah, 
Jesus, the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a, like a potter's vessel. Or if you want to jump over to Revelation chapter 19, you have this reference again referring to Christ. When he comes in his second coming and comes in judgment, Revelation 19, 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he will smite the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and on his robe and on his thigh a name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who's the baby? Who's the son? Jesus. Now get this. The Bible tells us in verse 4, second half of the verse, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth to this son who would rule the nations so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Wow. Next time you put up your nativity scene, (laughs) think of that one. Somewhere the devil is lurking. You say, where was the devil in the Christmas story? Well, how about Herod? Who tried to kill the baby Jesus by killing all the infants in Bethlehem. And so the, so the story goes, even from the very beginning. Pharaoh is called a dragon, by the way, and he tried to eliminate the Jewish race. The devil standing over the woman and trying to kill the child. Or Haman in the book of Esther who tried to eliminate the Jewish race. Or even in our own times with Hitler's attempts, this anti-Semitism is aimed at eliminating the one who would come and redeem the people of God. We see it in history. We see it everywhere. How about Judas trying to betray Jesus and the leaders who wanted to kill him? They did not at times know who was driving them and what his intentions were. But Revelation 12 pulls back the veil and says this is exactly what the devil is doing. He's trying to eliminate the son. So the woman flees, verse 6, flees into the wilderness. Some see this as Israel going into the wilderness after the Exodus story, a place prepared for God. But because of the, the days that are mentioned, the 1260 days which I think correlates with verse 11 the times a time and half a time which if you add that together two years one year and half a year according to the Jewish calendar of 360 days it equals 1260 days I think it's probably referring to the same time and probably referring to that future time the book of the trib- uh, or the, the revelation talks about the book Um, the the tribulation period. But I don't want us to get caught up with losing track of what's happening here. The devil tries to kill the son or kill the race that the son comes from. But he doesn't do it. What does it say about the son? He's the one who rules all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
What's that? That's the ascension. So you've got the birth and the ascension. What about his holy life? And what about his death on the cross? Well, the point of the passage here is that the devil doesn't achieve his goal. Jesus prevails. He's not destroyed. He's exalted. What you have to remember about the book of the Revelation is this. Don't get lost in the details. Don't be confused by all the different positions. And while it's fine for you to try to find your position and put the pieces of the puzzle together, don't miss the overarching story. What is it? Leon Morris, I think, gives us a great description of what that overarching story is. Remember this, he says. The whole of the book of the Revelation is written to a church which was facing persecution in their day. And that whatever else the book is meant to do, every section of the book is designed to encourage and help Harris believers. Every part of the book is written to encourage persecuted believers. Hey, we're seeing more and more persecution in our day. And the book of the Revelation is not just going to help us in the future. It's helping us right now. By letting us know that Jesus wins and the devil is defeated. Now, there's a second movement in Revelation chapter 12, and we'll call this the war in heaven. The war in heaven. Look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven Michael and his angels. By the way, Michael is the only one who is actually called an archangel in all the scripture. He appears to be the, at least in every scene where he is mentioned, there is some conflict going on, and he is leading the troops, General Michael. And his angels are waging war with the dragon and his angels. So the ones who fell with the devil have joined him and now there is this war going on in heaven. But the devil and his angels, the dragon and his angels, they weren't strong enough and no place was found for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down. That is the serpent of old who's called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That's exactly what the devil does. He's a deceiver. By the way, John chapter 8 says the devil is a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. It says that he's a liar. He invented it. He lies and deceives and kills and destroys. But he likes to veil his program in really attractive philosophies of life that people embrace and keeps them away from the truth. He's thrown down to the earth, the scripture says, and the angels were thrown down with him. And again, this is going to happen at a future point in time. I think the devil still has access to the heavenlies. He's called the prince of the power of the air. How high he goes, how far he goes, I do not know. He's not omnipresent, but nor is he bound. He's defeated... If you go back to Genesis 3, his head has been fatally wounded. But he's doing all he can to nip at the heels of the Savior and his seed. 
to keep the battle going. Someone has said that the devil will not accept the reality that he is a defeated foe. And he's going to keep battling because he knows, knows his time is short. So there's rejoicing in heaven. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night. Now this eschatological judgment, this future judgment of the devil puts an end to his accusing work. But right now he continues to accuse the brethren. Now think of that. He's a crafty serpent who deceives. He's a diabolical person who slanders. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is your adversary. He is against you. He wants to sift you like wheat. These are all portions of Scripture that describe his activity. But now he's described as the accuser of the brethren. Let me ask you this question. Are you a real Christian? I hope you are. If you are a real Christian, do you ever feel accused or guilty of things that you have done, that you are doing, things that you haven't done, that you should have done? Does that ever happen? Where does this type of accusation come from? The accuser of the brethren. Warren Worsby believes that the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, where Christians are judged to see whether they get reward or loss of reward, Worsby says it's possible that the devil will be there accusing the brethren still. That's an interesting thought. And he does it day and night, constantly. I don't know about you, but I often feel guilty. And whenever I try to justify my actions, I feel even worse. Or if I try to deny that something I did was really bad, I feel even worse. You ever notice that? If I try to ignore it, he just brings it back time and time and time again. So what do you do? Oh, this is great. Look at verse 11. And they overcame the accuser of the brethren. How? By the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? The death of Jesus Christ, the cross. There's only one way you can silence the evil one. It's the cross. The cross dealt that fatal blow to his head. It's the seed of the woman, Jesus, who will crush him and is victorious over him. And it's only by the cross that you and I can have forgiveness and life everlasting. Never forget that. The moment you begin to think that you're a good person, that you've lived a pretty good life, that you've built a great track record, that your Christian accomplishments somehow should give to you reward in heaven and status before the throne of God, the moment you begin to get high on yourself, the devil will topple you so quickly. So just agree with him. When he says to you, look at what you just did, isn't that horrible? You say, yeah, it is. And let the devil accuse you of different sins. And when he's done, tell him some that he didn't bring up. Hey, by the way, here's ten more that you forgot. And then take them to the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> Hide yourself in Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. A Savior has come. Why? Because we're sinners. And we need forgiveness. 
And it's only through Christ that we can find life. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, because of the word of their testimony. It could refer to their stand where they were willing to stand even to the point of death, or it could refer to the word upon which their testimony is built, which is the word of God. And we know, according to 1 John chapter 2, we overcome the evil one by the word of God that we hide in us and the word of God that we live out in our lives. So it's the blood of the Lamb and the word of God and submission even to the point of death. In other words, Christ is our Lord and we're willing to follow him wherever he leads us. By the way, did you notice verse 11 has the word overcome at the beginning and even unto death at the end? Where is that philosophy of health and wealth and everything is good? Only in America, only for a brief period of time, And even now, such a philosophy is crumbling as persecution increases. Yeah. Following Jesus may mean death. But you overcome by being obedient, the blood of the Lamb, and trusting in the Word. And so verse 12 says, For this reason heaven rejoices, and everyone who dwells in them, but for this reason the earth is in woe. Because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath and knowing that his time is short. And I think that's a reference to the tribulation period. Now, even now, the devil is at work and he's accusing. And even now, he's doing all he can to destroy the church. But it will intensify near the end of the age. That's the war going on in heaven. And did you notice the devil is a defeated foe? No place found for him. He did not overcome, wasn't strong enough, verse 8. And his time is short, verse 12. Keep that in mind. Now we come to the last movement, beginning in verse 13. Let's call this the malicious attempts of the dragon to destroy the church. Couldn't get to the sun. The sun is now exalted. So what does he do? He aims his arrows, his fiery darts, at the church. That's why you and I need the armor of God to protect us from the fiery darts of the devil, Ephesians chapter 6. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Again, now, probably speaking of a future time, referring now to the seed of the woman, that which the woman embodies, ultimately, the the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, Israel and the church. But they had two wings of a great eagle, swift. And in that mode, the woman was able to fly into the wilderness and find her place where she could be protected for a time and times and half a time. Again, the 1260 days. The serpent pours water out like a river out of his mouth, whether this is propaganda and false teaching, symbolically or literally a flood, we don't know, but the earth opens up its mouth and the devil is defeated. And the devil 
was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And here's where it's abundantly clear that it's not just one particular person, but the offspring that comes from the woman, the people of God, the one who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So because he can't get to the son, he persecutes the woman, and yet there's divine protection. The dragon is defeated and overcome, and he continues as best he can to persecute the offspring until the final judgment comes at the end of the book of the Revelation. And so we read this, and it's hard for us to comprehend that this stuff is going on right now, and it's part of the Christmas story, but the birth of Christ gives us victory. I like to think of it this way. There's a war going on, but we will win. There's a battle ensued, but praise God, the blessing of victory is ours in Christ Jesus. I love reading the old speeches of Winston Churchill during World War II. I mean, if you place yourself in Britain right after France had fallen and a new prime minister is on the scene who has his own faults, to be sure, but is amazing as the lion roars in Britain. And you hear him giving these speeches. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many months of long struggle and suffering. What is our policy? To wage war, he says, by sea, land, and air, with all our might, with all the strength that God will give us. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I answer in one word, victory. 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 Oh, he stirred the troops and he stirred the people. We shall not flag nor fail, he said. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France and on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. And we shall never surrender. By the way, at that point in time, they had no idea whether they would make it or not. But those words stirred up people to fight. Now, think of the words of Christ. Think of the words of the Bible. Far more stirring than Winston Churchill. And we know how it's going to end. These aren't words just to give us some kind of hope and fight well, not knowing the outcome. We know the outcome. Be encouraged, children of God. With Jesus on our side, we cannot lose. And that's what Christmas is all about. The dominant theme of this chapter is the decisive overthrow of the devil. He loses in every arena. He's still active today, and he's still a dragon. But we have the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords on our side. How would you feel if you got a letter in your mailbox tomorrow and you opened it up and it was not signed and the letter was a threat to take your life sometime this week when you're not expecting it, I'm going to take your life. You ever gotten one of those? <laughs> Some people have. Some people who are prominent leaders get them all the time. 
Jackie Robinson got them all the time when he broke the color barrier in baseball. Oh, by the way, I just want you to know, you got one of those letters. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be careful. Watch out for the attacks of de the devil, your enemy. He's like a roaring lion seeking to destroy you when you're not looking. Sorry to ruin your day. It's true. However, the greater truth is this. Jesus wins. And so if you know Christ, your heart should be filled with praise. Sing Silent Night. But remember, the cosmic battle is going on. And that Jesus Christ has conquered the devil. And you can read about it in the book of the Revelation, and it is so thrilling. And we shall reign with him forever and ever in a joyous Christmas celebration that will never end. I tell you, if these things were not true, I would be, of all people, most miserable. And I wouldn't waste my time playing church. But since these things are true, we better get engaged, put on the armor of God, trust the cross, the person who died in our place on the cross, trust the word that gives us insight and confidence and direction, and submit ourselves to the Lord, come what may, for the glory of God. And that is a Christmas story. Don't put your kids to bed with it tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the victory. Thank you for the confidence. Thank you for your mercy and power and grace. May it be ours today as we continue to trust what was accomplished on the cross and the word that tells us about that story. In Jesus' name, amen.